Well, if you're, if you're sort of new to the congregation, we are in a series called Inspired. We started at the end of August. We're going through the Bible uh, book by book in its order and pouring out uh, uh, all that is in those pages, sometimes taking more than one book at a time, but looking at it from the standpoint of what God has done and seeing Jesus in all the pages of those, of those books. And this morning, we have finally arrived at the book of Psalms. My favorite part of the day back in elementary school, uh, besides recess, that was everybody's favorite part of the day was recess, but my favorite part of the day is when the teacher would go over and take a book off of the shelf, a novel or a storybook, and read a chapter. You remember when the teachers would do that? And of all the stories that we heard, the, ones that, the one that stands out in my mind is this series called The Boxcar Children. Anybody remember The Boxcar children's stories. It was these four orphan children who found this abandoned boxcar in the woods, and that became their home. And I thought, what a cool adventure. Great stories are always an adventure. And you like stories just as much as I like stories. I, I know that's true, okay? And, and, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to all of us because that's the way God wired us. It's, I think it's built into our DNA, but I know it every Sunday. When I'm standing up here and I start telling a Bible story, those of you who have been wandering through the land of Nod, come back, and you listen with rapt attention. And when I'm done, you go back to whatever land of slumber you were in. It, it's just amazing how stories draw us in and, and how much we love those things. And you say, yeah, but, but all the books with the good stories are now done. We've reached the book of Psalms, a book of Hebrew poetry. There are no good stories in Psalms. You might be surprised. As a matter of fact, I believe the greatest story ever read, told, or heard is captured for the first time in the book of Psalms. It may not read like a storyline from a David Baldacci or John Grisham novel, but it is there nonetheless. And you say, well, what is the greatest story ever? Well, it's the event we celebrate every year during the Easter season. It is the event we celebrate every week with the Lord's Supper when we remember the suffering of Christ and his triumph over death. And you say, that's in the Psalms? That's, that's Old Testament stuff. Yeah, it's in the Psalms. Remember, one of the reasons I want us to spend these nine months going through the Bible book by book is so that you understand how we find Jesus in every book. That this is not a random collection of books. This is God's story throughout time. And this book of Hebrew poetry we call Psalms is no exception. In three incredible chapters, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, we are introduced to Jesus in a most spectacular way. Now, I think it's interesting that three times in the New Testament we find Jesus identified as our shepherd. In the Gospel of John, he is the good shepherd. In the book of Hebrews, he is the great shepherd. In the book of 1 Peter... He is the chief shepherd. In Psalm 22, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, he is the great shepherd who ever lives to care for his sheep. In Psalm 24, he's the chief shepherd, raised and glorified. 
And as the story unfolds in three consecutive chapters, so the events surrounding the crucifixion and the empty tomb unfold over a period of three consecutive days. There are no coincidences the way God put this whole thing together. It is his way of saying, I've known from the beginning what I want to do in your life. Let's begin with the first of this marvelous trilogy, Psalm 22. This psalm captures the pain and the heartbreak of suffering. It begins as an anguished prayer and a cry to God. This psalm, the Good Shepherd Psalm, is Friday in the last week of the life of Jesus Christ. We call that day Good Friday, the Good Shepherd's Psalm on Good Friday. Perhaps you'll recognize the events of that day pictured from the words of these verses in Psalm 22. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil man has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. Now scholars have tried for centuries to determine if there was an event in the life of David that precipitated the writing of this psalm, but none fit. This isn't David's psalm. This isn't his story. This is God's event. More than a thousand years before that ominous Friday, God begins to introduce us to what he is going to do. You say, well, David surely must have been watching a crucifixion when he wrote this. Oh, no, no, not at all. Crucifixion hadn't even entered the mind yet. It, it had not even been imagined. It would not become a form of execution and punishment for several more centuries. I'm convinced David had no idea the context in which he was prophetically writing these words. Oh, but we do. You cannot read these words and not see Jesus on the cross. From the opening words of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To that picture of the soldiers dividing up and casting lots for his garments at the foot of the cross. This is Friday on the cross at Golgotha in Jerusalem. And yet for all of the anguish and the pain represented in these verses, this psalm ends with a note of expectant hope. Just as with his own dying words at the cross, Jesus gives to the thief this promise of expectant hope. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know about you, but I'm overwhelmed with the detail of Psalm 22 and the prophecy contained in this passage. I feel like I'm reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about the actual events of that Friday. But it is God reminding us that he understands our suffering like no one else can and that from the beginning he has had a plan to intercede into our suffering and bring us hope. Wow. 
Now skip on over to chapter 24. In contrast to chapter 22, this is a psalm of triumph. If Psalm 22 was Friday's song, Psalm 24 is Sunday's song. As a matter of fact, a lot of scholars in their research believe that this psalm was composed for the celebration that took place when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. Now, you may remember the Ark of the Covenant. This was one of those pieces of furniture built for the tabernacle under the careful eye and observation of Moses. It was this small table overlaid with gold on which sat this lid that was carved of gold and two cherubim angels their wings about to touch in the middle and and it was this that represented the very presence of the king that the the lord god almighty in their presence when they marched out of the camp the ark of the covenant led the way when they marched into battle the ark of the covenant led the way this was as if saying god is with us and when we come to this time in, in Israel's history here, the ark has been in storage for, for a long time, not in a government warehouse, as Indiana Jones supposed, but in, a, in the house of Obed-Edom. And, and when Jerusalem was made the capital city, and when it was right, David brings the ark of the covenant now to reside in the city of Jerusalem. And he writes this psalm for this day, we believe. And, and, it, and, and it's a beautiful, well, just listen to these words in verse 7. It says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. This psalm was written as antiphonal praise. Now, now picture this in your mind. Maybe it happened this way, that the ark begins to make its way up the hill, to ascending into the city of Jerusalem, and there's two great choirs assembled on that day, one on either side of the street that the, that, where the ark is going to pass, and the one begins to sing these praises. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the other one answers, who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. Wow, what a day as back and forth and the ark comes in and David dances and the people celebrate the ark and come home. Now because of its triumphant strains, scholars also believe that Psalm 24 may have become one of the songs of ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were those that when the, when the people all over the kingdom would come to the city of Jerusalem for one of the three major holy days of the year. And as they would go up that same road that the ark had made its way into the city of Jerusalem, they would be singing these psalms. Now, now don't miss this. Don't miss this. According to the ancient rabbinical sources in the Jewish liturgy, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. Not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week. Now, transport your mind all the way fast forward a thousand years on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding up the hill. He's ascending to the city of Jerusalem. He's riding on this donkey inside the temple. They may very well at that moment have been reading Psalm 24, having no idea what they're doing. It's like a choir inside the temple reading and outside the people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the king. And you have this marvelous moment in time on Palm Sunday. But even that does not capture the ultimate picture. The ultimate picture came a week later the Sunday of the resurrection. Oh, to have been there, to have seen this one, because 
Long before the empty tomb was discovered here, I think there was a celebration in the courts of heaven that shook the very foundations of the heavenly city. I want you to picture it again, two great choirs, maybe one of angels, maybe the other of those who had already died and gone home to be with the Lord, and there they, they begin to sing these words, lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the other side echoes, who is the king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And then there he stood, the risen Christ, the Lamb of God who had taken away the sin of the world, the triumphant, eternal Christ, the King of kings, the chief shepherd himself, and all of heaven erupts in this praise and worship of the triumphant King. No wonder Psalm 24 is Sunday's song. Now, some of you are thinking right now, okay, Great Psalm 22, great Psalm 24, but you skipped over the best one, the most important one, Psalm 23. Yeah, this is the great shepherd's psalm. And this, my friends, is Saturday's song. The day in between Good Friday and the resurrection. John Ortberg had this to say about the Saturday between the Lord's death and resurrection. He said, it's the day after this, but the day before that. The day after a prayer gets asked, but the day before it gets answered. It's the day in between, the day between despair and joy, the brokenness and healing, confusion and understanding, fear and hope, life and death. Saturday is the in-between day, the day of God's silence. Here's the truth of the matter, folks. We live our entire lives in a Saturday world. We know what God did on Friday to prepare and pay for our sins, and we know what he promised through the resurrection that came on Sunday, but we, we are stuck in a Saturday world. Wrongs haven't been righted. Pain, heartbreak, and suffering are still hanging around. Mortality has not given up and given way to immortality just yet. It's Saturday. All of our lives, it's Saturday, and that's why we love the 23rd Psalm so much, because it gets us through our Saturday lives with all of its unknowns and with all of its unanswered questions. You see, when you live in a Saturday world, the pain in your life can be overwhelming. You meet somebody who you think is the love of your life, and just when you're ready to make that commitment, she walks out of your life and you don't know if you'll ever find anybody like her again. You lose a job, and at your age, you know you just lost the best opportunity to provide for your family and prepare for, for retirement, and now you have no idea how long you will have to keep working just to make ends meet. Your marriage fails. Your child walks away from your family and doesn't turn back. You pray that your panic attacks will end, but they don't. After months of counseling, the memories of abuse just simply won't go away. Heaven is silent. That's life in a Saturday world. Elsie and I were, were really looking forward to the birth of our grandson, Jack Sewer, this coming January. I was already dreaming as a grandpa what I would do again with this little guy, electric trains and old cars and the things that grandpas look forward to doing again. Little did I know when I preached last Sunday on the book of Job how much I would need those truths on Monday. 
Sometimes life in a Saturday world takes an unexpected turn and we don't like the new direction. This week, our daughter Rebecca gave birth to a stillborn son. Little Jack took his first steps in the presence of the Heavenly Father instead of with his family here. And I was once again reminded, folks, how this old sheep desperately needs a Savior and a great shepherd. Listen again to these incredible words, Saturday words, and hear them as if for the first time. And indulge me, please. I learned them in the King James, and they don't sound right in any other poetic form. The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This psalm is for the in-between day. This is for the in-between life. It's all about a relationship with the Lord who's the only one that can get you through your Saturday lives in this Saturday world. And in this psalm, he reminds us of the relational promises that he's given us, and I want to just highlight them for you quickly. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not want for contentment. Green pastures, still waters, restored soul. When I think of a picture of contentment, I, I think of the moment that Elsie and I stood on the shores of Jenny Lake in Wyoming and looked across that placid water to the base of the Grand Teton mountain range, towering into the sky, that part of the Rocky Mountains that is just incredibly beautiful. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of contentment here in this world better than that. And I found myself just feeling so at peace in the beauty of God's creation. But, but don't miss this. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. We are a restless people. And God knows in our restlessness, we won't find contentment until we learn to lie down. It's interesting that sheep will not lie down unless four conditions are met. According to Philip Keller, a shepherd and author, these are the requirements before a sheep is restful enough to lie down. Number one, to be free from fear. They have to be confident in the shepherd's protection. Number two, free from dissension in the flock. Number three, free from the torment of insects and parasites. And four, free from hunger and thirst. And when those needs are met, the sheep will lie down. But here's the irony. The sheep can't provide any of those. They have to depend on the shepherd for each one of those conditions. The flock that is restless, discontented, always agitated and disturbed is never a healthy flock. And the Christian 
that is always restless and agitated and disturbed is never a healthy Christian. Some things you just can't take care of on your own, and you need to trust the great shepherd to set you free from everything that keeps you from finding contentment. Here's something else. I shall not want for guidance. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Sheep are notorious for wandering off. The shepherd always is watching for that stray sheep somewhere. Now, I want you to grab this picture because we are always critical of sheep as being kind of silly and stupid and dumb and those kinds of creatures. But listen to what Isaiah says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now, it's my understanding that when a, when a sheep is born, a lamb uh, has been born, that the shepherd notches the ear of the lamb in such a way that he knows that's his sheep. Sort of like a, uh, a rancher will brand his cattle so that he and everybody else will know what uh, cattle is in his herd. Now, picture a shepherd who has lost a lamb, and he's searched everywhere and cannot find the lamb, and finally has to give up looking, but Weeks, weeks later, he is at a livestock auction and he sees this sheep, not a lamb anymore, but now a grown sheep, and it looks like his notch on the ear, and so he goes over and takes a closer look and he knows this is the sheep that has grown up from that lamb. It is his notch, and he goes to the auctioneer, pleads his case to the auctioneer, and the auctioneer says, you still have to bid and buy the lamb like anybody else. This is an auction. And so he goes into the bidding process and he pays an exorbitant price to buy back this sheep, and he owns it twice, once by birth and once by redemption. All we like sheep have gone astray, but God has paid an exorbitant price to redeem what was already his by right of creation. Anyone who has paid for you twice is worth following. So on the tough days when Saturday's darkness seems to settle around you like a fog and you can't see what's up ahead, stay close to the shepherd. He will lead you and protect you. Thirdly, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not want for comfort. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Did you notice, folks, the shift from the third person pronoun to the second person? Up before this, every other verse says, he leads, he makes, he restores, he guides. And now the psalmist shifts to the second person. You are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a meal for me. You anoint my head with oil. Suddenly we move out of the abstract into this personal relationship. This is my favorite verse in all of Psalm 23. And though I've used this over and over again in funerals, every time I share it, it brings comfort to me. I hope it will bring it to you again, even though you've heard it before. For years, I wondered, why did David write, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Why not just, I walk through the valley of death? And then somebody pointed out to me that a shadow doesn't hurt. A shadow obscures our, 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 our vision. It, it blocks our view. It darkens our path. Sometimes even a shadow can be scary, but a shadow cannot hurt. And do you know, to have a shadow, you must also have a light. So if you walk through the valley with the light of the world himself, he casts the shadow behind you, not in front of you, and guides you the rest of the way home. 
You can face even the darkest of Saturday valleys when you walk through them with the great shepherd, the light of the world. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want for an eternal home. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That combination of dwelling and house in the Hebrew there suggests permanence. This isn't a place that you're going to rent for a temporary period of time. This is home forever in the very presence of God, in the heart of heaven. This Saturday song ends with the triumphant pointing of what Sunday will bring. Because of the resurrection, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a story. What an adventure. Sunday school teacher asked her class of early elementary students if any of them by any chance had memorized the 23rd Psalm. Now, she wasn't expecting anybody to have memorized it. <laughs> but one perky little girl in the class raised her hand. The teacher said, really? You, you've memorized the 23rd Psalm? And she said, yes. All of it? Yes. She got up out of her seat, came to the front of the class, made a little bit of a curtsy, and she said, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And she sat down. That may be the best summary of the 23rd Psalm I have ever heard. You see, folks, if the God of the universe can be found on a cross, if the God of the universe can be found for a moment in time in a tomb, where in the world can't the God of the universe be found? And here's the thing about life in a Saturday world. In all of our uncertainties and unknowns, He's all you got. But then again, he's all you need. This week, in my Saturday world, I learned all over again that the Lord is my shepherd. And that's all I want. It's all I need. It's all you need. But is he all you want? Your choice. But I don't want to go through this Saturday world without knowing the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. While we stand and while we sing, you come to him.